Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. For joining us for another episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. Today we are joined by Bill Lambert. He is the state traffic engineer in the New Hampshire DOT Bureau of Traffic. Bill, welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Good morning, Bernie. Thank you. We're going to start off, I think, by giving folks a, a little bit of background about you and your career in transportation. So why don't you tell us a bit about how you got to where you are right now, please? Yeah, it's kind of an, un, not necessarily unusual, but I, I, I took kind of a convoluted path to get to where I am. I, I can't say that, that I ever had a career path that I desired to be a traffic engineer. I, I was coming through high school, accomplished in the math and sciences and encouraged to go into engineering, um, went to Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and took the seven-year program, um, mostly because I took a gap year when all of my friends from high school were making money in the local paper mill, realized I was falling behind them. Um, but then <laughs> after actually working for a living for a year, I, I thought I'd go back to school. So I took the seven-year program, didn't necessarily have any particular job that I wanted. I, my college courses were in the area of construction management. Uh, but the first job I ended up getting uh, was a consultant engineer uh, working in New Hampshire, a firm that had several offices. I worked there for six years, worked briefly with uh, Frank Lind, who had been the state traffic engineer in New Hampshire for 20-something years before he retired. And I'll get to that in a minute. So after several years in the consultant world, I was interested in the public sector. So I, I went to work for the New Hampshire DOT, the Bureau of Highway Design uh, Consultant Section. I worked there for several years. And in that capacity, uh, I worked on a number of significant highway projects, but the most prominent was the expansion of our New Hampshire Route 101 from the middle of the state to the seacoast. It was 17 miles of connecting, of extending a four-lane divided highway. It was an interesting project in a lot of ways. And one of them, uh, the most significant, was that it was an environmentally sensitive project. Um, so it got a lot of attention for capacity and operations because there'd been a lot of fatalities on that segment of at-grade highway um, over the years. So there was a lot of interest in completing that divided highway. Um, but there was also some environmental impacts in a time in the 80s, 90s, when environmental impacts were getting to be more and more of a concern. Uh, so actually, when I started working on it, they were at a pause. They had built several bridges for the initial alignment, but they had to redesign the alignment to avoid some wetland impacts. So it was interesting that it got to be known as a project with the bridge to nowhere, uh, because we had built the bridge for the initial alignment. And then for several years, it was standing by itself with, with nothing connecting it. Um, so that was interesting. I also during that time, I was promoted to the senior consultant design engineer, where I oversaw several full-time engineers and millions of dollars of highway projects. At that time, I was somewhat aware of, this, of the significant rate of attrition in our operations bureau of traffic, which ultimately led to the state traffic engineer position being open. I didn't really consider that until one of my colleagues happened to walk by me one day and asked, so are you going to be the next Mr. Traffic? Which is <laughs> kind of what led me to apply for the position. And uh, again, I didn't really have a, a career path for it, um, but I was selected for that position in March of 2000 and have served in that role ever since. 
the first visitor to congratulate me, uh, getting back to Frank Lynn, uh, was Frank. Uh, he was on his way past the office, stopped in, sat down opposite me at his old desk, the desk that I still use because we don't replace furniture in the public sector very often. He sat down, he looked around, he said, best job in the state. And after 20 something years, I can say that he wasn't wrong. As state traffic engineer, I really have two different positions uh, rolled into one. The first is as a traffic engineer responsible for design, application, installation, and maintenance of all traffic signals, highway signs, and pavement markings on state highways. Also responsible as a traffic engineer for regulating highways, including speed limits, parking regulations, and no passing zones. But as bureau administrator, I'm also responsible for hiring, discipline, training, and employee development. So there's really two, two different jobs. And like I said, it took me, what, 12 years to get here. But once I got here, I found out that this is what the job I always wanted. Well, I guess going back to your consulting days and then obviously through your days at New Hampshire DOT, there have been, it's fair to say, a, a fair number of changes. What are some of the uh, biggest changes that you've seen over those years? Yeah, that's a great question because we think of highways as being something that doesn't have a lot of change, but I've seen some significant changes. And the biggest change for our agency has been a shift from new or expanded highway construction and bridge construction to a preservation and maintenance focus. And that has a lot to do with our funding. Uh, while we still have probably capacity needs, we just simply don't have the funding to build and maintain uh, the additional lane miles. Most of our projects that we put out now are for pavement and bridge preservation. The remaining discretionary fund is primarily used for highway safety and efficiency projects uh, in minor, like traffic signal co uh, coordination, adaptive signals, um, and then like bike lanes or some smaller highway safety projects. The biggest workforce change, I would think, would be in the area of diversity. And we're still a pretty homogenous white state in New Hampshire. Uh, so our diversity tends to be mostly gender diversity. Uh, when I started working for the DOT in 1993, um, there were a handful of women uh, engineers in the, in the department. And by handful, I could literally count them on one hand. Um, over the last 30 years, I've seen that that number has risen where it's probably close to 50%, especially in the younger generation that's coming in. Back in 1993, the women engineers that worked for the department were all pretty much staff engineers. Uh, but since that time, I've worked for two women commissioners, both of whom have served as the AASHTO president. And I think there are only two of three AASHTO presidents that have been women. So that's pretty significant. And then women, women engineers are now routinely in positions as project manager, bureau or uh, section chiefs, and other leadership positions throughout the department. And then lastly, the last workforce challenge change that I think is significant, it affects how we do business. Uh, we can no longer expect professional staff to stay in one position or one area of expertise for their entire career. Employees are looking for diversity in their own career, and they tend to move on a lot faster. What that means is we no longer have that subject matter expert that's spent 10 to 20 years or more in one area of expertise. Um, we now have to plan on people being in positions for five to 10 years or less. And that means that we have to establish documented policies, practices, and guidelines to facilitate that continuity of operation. In recent years, we've given a lot of attention to safety and operations challenges in metropolitan areas. Now, New Hampshire does have some metropolitan areas, but it's a largely rural state. How do those issues compare with the issues that are faced by states like New Hampshire? And how are you addressing 
some of those challenges? Yeah, thank you, Bernie. That's a good question as well. And I choose to be in New Hampshire. I'm, I'm a Northern New England kid, was raised there and plan to stay here for the rest of my life. So I like working in a rural environment. As a comparison, uh, my colleague to the South, uh, working in Mastot, is currently engaged in um, the Orange Line public trans- transit shutdown for the next month or two, where he's got to f- figure out a way to get all those Orange Line riders into and out of Boston um, on the surface road system. And things like that, when I hear from my colleagues, remind me why I'm a rural traffic engineer and not an urban traffic engineer. That's not to say that we do not have traffic safety and operation challenges in New Hampshire. Um, one of the issues that we see in New Hampshire is because we are in the greater Boston metropolitan area, a lot of those metropolitan transportation safety and operation issues kind of leak across our border. So we deal with some of that in that part of the state. Uh, and you did say that we have some metropolitan areas. I wouldn't necessarily call them metropolitan areas, but it's perspective. People in New Hampshire that live in what we call an urban area think that that's the worst location in the world. Um, so we deal with the perception of the, of the metropolitan urban challenges. Um, speed management is probably the most significant that I have. Again, we're outside of the greater Boston metropolitan area, and we're a tourist state. So we get a lot of visitors on weekends that probably push the speed issues up. Um, but that's not saying that New Hampshire natives and residents aren't also guilty. The complaints I get, people always recognize the speed behavior of their neighbors and people that drive by them mm-hmm. they don't necessarily recognize their contribution to the speed <laughs> issue. So as a state traffic engineer, I have the commissioner's delegated authority to set state speed zones. So I get wrapped up in all of those discussions. I spend a majority of my engineer time educating citizens and law enforcement and local officials about how speed limits are set and why and talking about the credibility of speed limits so that uh, we're not arbitrarily lowering, but lowering them to a number that people won't voluntarily follow. Um, so that's one of the issues that we're dealing with. I, right now, I've been dealing with a collaborative effort with our state police and our local chiefs of police uh, and other stakeholders to try to uh, educate and change the culture and speed. So that's an engineering activity that includes education and enforcement as well. And I think it's important because no one silo is going to solve that problem. Distracted and inattentive driving is also a significant issue, uh, whether it's for pedestrian crossings, sharing road bicyclists and other vulnerable users, intersection safety, and a host of other safety and operational issues. And one of the challenges as traffic engineers, it seems that we get asked to solve all of that behavioral issues with more signs, bigger signs, flashing signs, and the like. One of the challenges for me is to use those devices where appropriate, but not to overuse them so that they become less effective and then trying to educate folks as to how we make those decisions. One of the other things that we don't necessarily have urban issues, we do have built up business districts and other high density commercial and residential locations. Again, because of the proximity to a greater Boston metropolitan area and the fact that we do not have a sales tax, we do have a lot of those commercial areas. And we've got several quarters that were this challenging, either peak traffic conditions or weekend traffic conditions where we're uh, introducing adaptive signal concept, optimization of traffic signal timing and phasing, and better access control. And we're also looking to reestablish or establish communication to those traffic signal systems so that we can manage that operation from our 
headquarters rather than sending a technician out to open up the cabinet and look to see if there's anything that can be changed there. So we are introducing kind of metropolitan urban technology. We were the first state in the Northeast to introduce the flashing yellow arrow. And so that's something that we did to improve efficiency and safety uh, because people just didn't understand what a green ball meant on a permissive left turn. And I think we took a leadership position in that in most of the states around us have since adopted it. You were talking about speeding being an issue, distracted driving being an issue. One of the things that I've heard about in many different parts of the country was during COVID, people seem to have become more aggressive on the roadways. Is that an issue that that you've seen there in New Hampshire? It's certainly an inter, an issue that's been reported here in New Hampshire. I don't know if there's a way to measure that. Um, certainly, there's a lot more complaints. Some of that can be attributed to people working from home so that they see the people that are driving that way around their house and their community. Um, but I do believe that there is increased or decreased driver behavior. Two weeks ago, I think on a Saturday afternoon, uh, we had an auto car club of Corvettes travel through the state. And one of them was clocked at 161 miles an hour on the interstate highway coming through the lakes in the mountains area. So it's, it wasn't certainly off-peak hours. It was during a time when it's quite a few vehicles on the road. Ironically, the um, that vehicle got pulled over several miles north of there because it got stuck in traffic exiting the highway. <laughs> uh, so, so that was kind of ironic. Those are the kinds of things that we're seeing more of. That's not necessarily aggressive driving, but we are seeing probably an increase in the number of auto clubs that are meeting each other through social media and arranging to to drive. Uh, And again, as a tourist state, we have a lot of kind of rural scenic highways that are attractive for those kind of groups. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a motorcycle couple uh, that was killed last year as part of a group where they were going through a a road that would normally be closed in the winter, still is closed in the winter. Uh, They were the last motorcycle in the group going over the top of a mountain and back down the other side. When the group got to the far side, they didn't show up. So when they went back to look for them, they had gone off the road and hit something. And both of the, the driver, the operator and the passenger were killed. Plus, we're seeing the same day that the Corvette was 161 miles an hour. I was happened to be in the White Mountains and saw a group of uh, Volkswagen sports cars. And even though there was such a thing, uh, but they were clearly <laughs> traveling as a group. And again, on one of those seasonal roads that goes winding through the White Mountains with a lot of good views and a, and a lot of sharp curves, we are seeing an uptick in that. And certainly our fatality numbers are showing that. I think they're up 25 to 30% from this point last year. Uh, and they were up last year from the previous year. So I think that's a trend that we're seeing all over the country. Um, New Hampshire is probably a little higher than others right now. Getting back to New Hampshire being a primarily rural state, how do you envision not just New Hampshire DOT, but DOTs in general that have more rural roads utilizing the federal funding that's been made available by the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah, that's interesting because as that law was being announced and implemented, folks on the podcast might not remember, but Joe Biden kind of had a public event the day after he signed it here in New Hampshire, walking across uh, one of our red listed bridges that was targeted for um, reconstruction or repair with the congressional delegation and our commissioner. Um, That was a photo op that I think was pretty prominent after the BIL was signed. There was a lot of fanfare for that, for the additional funding, but what we're finding timing-wise is with the the runaway inflation we've had in the last several months, that the projects that we're letting out 
are coming in at anywhere from 20 to 30% higher than our engineer's estimate. And even the engineer's estimate has been inflated to reflect anticipated inflation. So a lot of the additional funding is going towards just inflation. So that that's kind of softened the impact of, of the BIL as far as getting more work done. Um, but we have recognized that there's likely to be more work. So we established several um, temporary positions to accommodate that work, all of which are in our project development. Um, they're funded through BIL, not, not additional state positions, but they're temporary positions that are funded through the new reauthorization, specifically for increased federal activity. So the projects are geared for, designed to accommodate that increased funding. Two of those positions are in my shop and we haven't filled them yet. And one of the challenges with that is even the positions that we do have, we have a hard time recruiting for. So to try to bring in more and we're hearing the same from the consultants. So the additional funding came at a time when we just with COVID finding it hard to find people to do the work. Um, so that's going to be a challenge for us. If we promote people to these new positions, but we don't backfill the positions that they left. If all of those changes are internal, we're not bringing in new people. We haven't increased our capacity. So some of it has to do with putting together projects that we can do efficiently. Um, so maybe not the projects that we would have wanted to do otherwise, but something that we can get out the door and in the hands of the contractor. Some of it might be design build so that we can get it on the street quicker. We're looking at some of those things. And one of the other things with the BIL is we anticipate that there's going to be increased funding for safety because the BIL includes some of that money and it comes at a time when the USDOT released the National Roadway Safety Strategy uh, and there's a lot more focus on safe system approach initiatives. Uh, so we believe that there's going to be a significant impact on DOT safety programs, uh, but we have yet to determine exactly what that's going to be. Some of the things that we're considering are providing rectangular rapid flashing beacons to communities as a means to improve safety at uncontrolled pedestrian crossings. In our state, things like crosswalks and RFBs, PHBs are approved by the DOT and the state system, but maintained by the, the communities. Um, we're also talking about providing speed feedback science to towns to improve driver recognition of the speed limit changes from the rural environment to an urban environment what we would call an urban environment. Uh, but we want to be careful that we're not oversaturating the highway with those so that they become less effective in the places where we think they belong. And then uh, we're also looking to develop traffic control device hierarchy for rail trail crossings. Another, I guess, consequence or condition of COVID is that we've seen a lot more people looking to get outside and enjoy recreational opportunities. And we're getting more and more use of the rail trails around the state. And because of the nature of the rail corridors, those rail trails tend to be on pretty rural highways, often in high-speed environments, where a crosswalk is probably not the right device. So we're, we're looking to develop a hierarchy based on where they are, traffic volume, speed, what kind of traffic control applications we'll use. And then part of that strategy would be to implement some of the low-hanging fruit, maybe prioritize the ones that we want to, we want to address first. We'll have more in today's ITE Talks Transportation podcast right after this message. Do you want to reach more than 16,000 transportation professionals? Podcasts like this one are a great way to reach a dedicated audience of listeners. Sponsoring an ITE podcast is a cost-effective way to gain exposure and build brand awareness. ITE offers podcasts on key issues like mobility as a service, 
safety, connected and automated vehicles, and transportation systems management and operations, ensuring your message is heard by the right people. For more information, contact Tima Good at tima.good at the ygsgroup.com. That's T-I-M-A dot G-O-O-D at the ygsgroup.com. You talked about the inflationary pressures that you're facing uh, and in terms of costs coming in much higher than the state engineers estimate. And you also talked about design build as, as one strategy. Is it possible or do you feel that there is a need to try to speed up the process to kind of get ahead of some of these inflationary pressures and spend the money more quickly before it becomes even more expensive down the line? It's not an easy answer for that because it's also affected by the supply chain issues. I mean, right now, just our pavement marking maintenance program, we're we're down to 75% capacity production because we're, we just don't have the material. The material suppliers are in a, a force majeure due to raw material shortages so that they're only providing 75% of the contracted quantity that we, we have. Uh, so that affects what we can do. And, and we're seeing the similar supply chain issues with steel uh, and aluminum and other transportation materials and trying to find truck drivers. Contractors are hard, having a hard time finding truck drivers. So we've put out a couple of projects where we, we look at them and we put a schedule together and then the contractors are bidding on them. They don't know if they're going to have enough people to get them done. Uh, so it's kind of hard for us to give them a fixed date of completion when uh, when their resources are spread pretty thin as well. I mean, I, I talked to one contractor that I've known since our kids were in Little League together, and he talked about the company that he works for bidding on projects, just throwing numbers out there. The numbers are outrageous because they've got enough work. They don't need the work, but if they can get it for that money, they'll take it. And he sees that as they're bringing in a lot of bids that, they're getting the bids on those outrageous prices, but then they have to think, well, now what do we do? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if accelerating those projects to beat the inflation is going to be all that effective because you still have to have the resources to get that done. I want to wrap things up, Bill, with a question that kind of goes back to the first question where you talked about your experience and what you've done during your career. And it also ties into some of those staffing challenges that you talked about. Staffing, as you said, it's an issue that's being faced everywhere, public agencies, private companies, et cetera. If you were to talk to a young person who was considering going into a career in transportation, what would you tell that person are some of the primary benefits and rewards for working in the public sector? That's a great question. And it's probably a question that could be answered differently by everybody in the department that's had private public experience. I think it's hard to answer that question without first talking about some of the challenges in the private sector. Um, the private sector does have rewards. That they're not all fiscal because I think you can work in different with different customers, public, municipal, state, and that sort of thing. But my experience in the private sector, uh, one of the biggest challenges was getting work. We were constantly, even with only six years experience, we were constantly writing proposals uh, to get work. And I think the, the writing on the wall for me was a project that I sat in a pre-proposal meeting with 30 other firms, everything from national firms to somebody with a shingle on their on their mailbox for 3,000 feet of new alignment public road, town road, and the town made it clear that they were going with the low fee. So if that was a competition, um, the only way you could get work was to do 
probably a lot of the, the work on your own time because you weren't going to get the project if you didn't cut the fee way down. Uh, and there was a lot of volatility in that private sector. The, the firm that I worked for started when I started had five different offices, three in New Hampshire and one in Maine and one in Massachusetts. And they subsequently added a satellite in the U.S. Virgin Islands. But within three to four years, they cut that way back to one office in New Hampshire and one in Maine. And the one in Maine subsequently broke off into their own company. So as they were closing offices and reducing staff, there were a lot of Fridays when you were looking around hoping that the boss wasn't going to tap you on the shoulder. <laughs> and, and that level of volatility was uncomfortable for me. I, I didn't want to move around a whole lot. I had a young family and a growing family in a new home, and I, and I wanted some stability. So the first thing that I looked for in the public sector was the fact that it provided that stability and security. And I also found out that it wasn't the stereotypical six guys leaning on a shovel watching one guy work, there was a lot of work and a lot of challenging work. Uh, so what I found is that I never had to be concerned with finding work again. I, I got to work on that one-on-one project, which was a, a premier project in the state at the time. Uh, I got to work on a lot of other good projects and I've gotten to work on a lot of good projects as a traffic engineer. I had the ability to work on a wide variety of projects and to participate in the development projects that weren't assigned to me. One of the things in the public sector is that in that consultant section office working in a cubicle farm, I had my assigned projects and the people that were working for me had their assigned projects, but you also knew of the work that was going on in other desks. And you would collaborate with folks and have input on pretty much all of the infrastructure projects that the department did, which I thought was a great opportunity. And one of the things I learned in the private sector is that when I had to reach out to a subject matter expert to learn about something in highway or transportation, they were always with the DOT. So the subject matter experts were the people in the DOT. And I kind of wanted to be in that position where I got to be recognized as an expert in the field, not just one of the consultants that was working in that. So one of the other things in the public sector, once I got to the position I'm in now is the ability to influence policy whether through testifying to the legislature, uh, working with towns and cities, local law enforcement, state law enforcement. As a partner in those discussions, you get to have a lot of influence on public policy, uh, some of which in the speed limit field, a lot of times when folks file a bill to change the way we do speed limits, it's good to know as, as the expert that I get to go to the legislature and Having worked with them for 20 years, that they respect my opinion and my experience, and, and they tend to listen. A lot of them will reach out to me separately outside of that legislative process when either they want to submit a bill or when constituents are concerned with something. So building that relationship with the elected officials is something I don't think I would do in the, in the private sector. And the, the other thing in the, the public sector, it's given me a number of opportunities to contribute to the profession outside of the borders of the state of New Hampshire. You would think working for one state DOT, you'd kind of be restricted to influencing that DOT. Uh, but in my position in the last 20 plus years, I've been involved with the ASTO Committee on Traffic Engineering. Uh, and interestingly, like in a lot of things, uh, 23 years ago, I was a new kid who was reaching out to all the experienced engineers around me trying to get input and advice. 20 something years later, I find myself as that person <laughs> where the new people that come in uh, reach out to me. Uh, which is, I, I think, it's important to have that kind of continuity. I've also been involved in the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and I'm not one to sit in the back of the room and take notes, 
if I'm involved in the committee, I, I tend to speak up. I tend to get involved. And as you might know, when you do that in a volunteer organization, you tend to move into leadership positions pretty fast. So I took uh, the leadership role in two of the national committee technical committees, and I'm currently the vice chair of programs. So that's like the second person in, in command. Uh, I've been at the transportation research board at the annual meeting, sometimes as a panel participant, I've been a member of a number of or a few NCHRP project panels. So the National Cooperative Highway Research Program have been involved in a number of things in ITE, which certainly you can do in the private sector and the private sector might at least pay for the membership and things like that. But I think as you get a prominent role in this public agency, um, you get asked to participate in things like that more often. So with ITE, I've been involved with the annual meeting. I presented at the annual meeting on a couple of, of occasions. I've also been on the technical advisory committees, and most importantly, I think for me, is a bit, I've been a resource for the state chapter. Because of what ITE does and represents in the membership, uh, I tend to be asked to speak to their annual meetings on a, on a frequent basis, and people know to reach out to me if they have questions about state policies. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in the private and the public sector to contribute, and I think that's for me, the most important thing, and one of the, I guess the last thing I'll say is even when I was in the private sector, I found that the people that I worked with that had institutional knowledge and experience, a lot of them learned it when they worked in the public sector initially. So I think even if you think you want to work for a consultant uh, eventually, that or even be your own consultant, gaining that base of experience in the public sector is a great opportunity. And I can, lastly, what we've seen recently was we get people that have worked in the private sector for a number of years, but then either get burnt out or want a change of pace and they end up coming into the department because of the way that we've had attrition. They've been able to come into the department at a more senior level than they would have a generation ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so coming in with that private sector experience and then managing a bureau in the public sector uh, is an opportunity that probably didn't exist. When I started 30 years ago, uh, even if you had five, 10 ex years experience, you came in at the bottom because that's the, everybody else is getting hired from within. But now we're seeing because of attrition that there's a lot more opportunities for experienced engineers to come into the department in the middle of their career. Bill, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise, your years of experience with our audience here on ITE Talks Transportation. We've been talking with Bill Lambert. He is the state traffic engineer in the New Hampshire Department of Transportation in their Bureau of Traffic. Bill, again, thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you, Bernie. It was great to be here.